legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 231. In this episode, we sit down with neurologist Robert Burton. I wanted to meet Burton because he wrote a book, and last year I read that book. It was published in 2008, and it's called On Being Certain. And it fundamentally changed the way I think about what a belief actually is. And that's because in the book, he explores certainty itself, the biological output of neurons delivering a sensation of certainty or the lack thereof. And in one section, he talked about the neuroscience behind aha moments. And he used this description as an example. See if you can make sense of it. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but... It is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can also cause problems. One needs lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. When you hear this, you get that I-don't-understand feeling. You can feel your lack of certainty about what is being described, but if I tell you what the text describes, you get a completely different feeling, and you have no choice in the matter. It happens to you, like the pain that comes from bumping your knee against the corner of a table. I'll read it again, and try to remember the way you felt the first time I read it, compared to this time. After, I've told you that what I am describing is a kite. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can also cause problems. One needs lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. 
If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. Did you feel the difference? Did you feel your mind change from uncertainty to certainty? As Burton put it, you feel the prior discomfort of something amiss shifting to a pleasing sense of rightness. Everything fits, every sentence works, and has meaning. That is what Burton calls the feeling of knowing. And that sensation is biological, a mental state that happens to us. We don't decide or choose to be certain. We just feel it. But Burton says that's not a conclusion. It's a sensation that feels like a conclusion. When you, if you suddenly you get aha that things are right, you know you didn't cause the aha. The aha simply happens to you. But when you have that feeling of knowing, you can't help but feel that you concluded it. So it is a sensation that feels like a conclusion. That's neurologist Robert Burton, who at the age of 33 was appointed chief of the Division of Neurology at UCSF Medical Center at Mount Zion, where he subsequently became associate chief of the Department of Neurosciences. Hi, I'm Bob Burton. I am presently uh, retired. I have been a neurologist for many years, Was ran the neurology department at UCSF Mount Zion for a long time, and then I took to writing as well. And in my retirement now, I primarily write novels, books, short stories, uh, etc. And I've written a couple books on the mind. And there we are. So, uh, it's interesting that you decided to jump into fiction. Was that something you always wanted to do? I, no, I can't really say that I always wanted to do it, but I found that I want, had some things I wanted to express and that I thought were best expressed through st- stories and personal feelings. And then I spent a long period of time um, writing about the brain, as you know. And then in more recent years, I've actually gone back in the other direction as I've become increasingly convinced that people are not swayed by reason and they're more likely to uh, change their mind through story or um, anecdote and and vignette than they are by uh, discourse. Well, let's start there. Uh, We'll get to the everything else, uh, but since that's something that just came naturally out of your mouth just now. What, what do you, why do you think that is a more effective r- route toward persuasion than just brute force shoving facts in people's faces? I think that for me, the thing that started me working on thinking about the mind was uh, probably started off when I was a little kid, although I didn't realize it at the time. And I've always been struck by the fact that you rarely change another person's point of view simply by giving him better evidence. And that led me ultimately to thinking about uh, the book, which you want to talk about, On Being Certain. And and it, and it led me actually to thinking about how you know something. And if you conceive of a, of a, a, a mind in, in its infancy as having some innate qualities, um, and then everything else beyond that original innate things, which we probably share pretty much in common, depending upon our genetic makeups, uh, is acquired. We learn through laying down grooves of uh, ex- based upon our exposure. So if you're so if you're taught uh, a way of life that's culturally different than someone else's way of life, every single um, thought that enters your mind will have that cultural coloration. And so this includes language. 
So you start with phonemes and and words and uh, you know sentences and syntax and so on. So that to the extent that your articulated thoughts, I don't know. We don't know what thoughts are, obviously, underneath in terms of how it works. But in terms of articulated thoughts, they are processed through language. So your language is going to be different than my language. And unless you had the same exact background, and even if you had identical twins, it will be different. So the way that you learn to initiate an idea, lines of reasoning, ever to the extent that you articulate them, the part that's conscious and so you express it, is going to be idiosyncratic. So your view of the world isn't going to be mine. And to the extent that you believe that the way that you think is equal to or better than mine, and particularly if you think it's better than mine for whatever reason because it feels right, which is how I got into the idea about uncertainty. If you feel that your idea is right, I'm not going to change you by giving you my point of view no matter what I tell you. Um, most most mind changing occurs as a result of epiphanies. Something happens that 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 is beneath logic. You you know you have a an event in your personal life. You have some experience. You have exposure to somebody who who shakes up your worldview. Those aren't usually articulated re- points of reason. And I think that if 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 nothing else, this recent uh, partisan diatribe that you hear in politics nowadays points out how few people can actually change their mind. Uh, it's extraordinary to see how few people are changed by the behavior of, let's say, Do- Donald Trump in the last four years. I mean, those who like him, those who like him, continue to like him, and it doesn't make any difference what you say. But this is not just true; it's true on virtually every major social issue. It's true in your interpersonal relationships. So I. Although I spent the last almost two decades writing expository um, stuff trying to explain things, and I did the best I could, I feel that it's primarily fallen on deaf ears. With that in mind, after the break, Robert Burton will tell us all about the arguments he made based on evidence, based on his expertise in his book, On Being Certain. Ideas like conclusions are not conscious choices, and certainty is not even a thought process. Certainty and similar states of knowing, as he puts it, are sensations that feel like thoughts, but arise out of involuntary brain mechanisms that function independently of reason. All that after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend 
our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many, you can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases 
all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast, and we are about to listen to an interview with neurologist Robert Burton. It was very difficult for me to get to, uh, I, I was already sort of, I was hoping someone had said something like you, like what you'd said in your book, because it was very difficult for me to even get a solid answer or to find any kind of common language around ideas like belief, ideas like attitudes, ideas like values. It seemed like I could ask a hundred different experts and I would get a hundred different definitions. And without there being like sort of a, a terminology, a shared terminology, a, an agreement on the terms, uh, I could see that in all these different silos of whether it's social science or neuroscience or political science or wherever I was looking, it was uh, even network science. There was a lot of difficulty, it seemed, in everyone agreeing on what we're even talking about. Even even the phrase change your mind, I was I was really surprised to learn Many people have many different different definitions for what that means, and in some cultures, there's that phrase doesn't even exist. It doesn't even translate, and there's a long history of trying to sort out what's going on there. And for me, for my from my perspective, after spending so much time being obsessed with this, the way you framed it in that book, and the way you framed it in some of the stuff you've written since, and stuff you've written in the popular press, that makes sense to me. That seems. Correct to me. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm having a very strong feeling of certainty whenever I look at your stuff. So thanks for all that, I guess. So I'm just trying to give you some bona fides there to let you know where we're at with all this. But And this idea, I want to explore it with you here now, which is, this is something we all, I've, I've talked about this many times, people bring it up a lot. It feels like you study the evidence. You've, this, you've written this, you know, and that we carefully contemplate it. You wrote for Slate once, you know, we weigh the pros and cons, then we make a decision. We say, aha, this is what we, what I believe. And the feeling you get seems like you have done all this hard work, but you say in your writing that modern biology points in a different direction and says, no matter what we're feeling when it comes to certainty, that isn't like actual certainty. It's a feeling that happens to us a feeling that we know something and whether or not it, that's correct is aside from whether or not it, that is true. So this idea that it happens to us, I think is the most interesting part. So let me just kind of ask this as sort of a question and we can get into stuff. This feeling of knowing, it feels like it sort of lumps together a lot of ideas, certainty and conviction and correctness and rightness. And you create your own term, this feeling of knowing. What is this feeling of knowing? If we can just start there to sort of get into it. Okay, just let me just to preface this. Let me make a sort of an an observation and might help clarify this. 
if if we accept the fact that most, the vast majority of thought, and when I use the word thought, I mean calculation. For example, if you calculate how your hand reaches out to 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 pick up a cup of coffee, that's a calculation. If you calculate how to say the uh, national anthem, that's another motor calculation that your brain has done and so on. So if you imagine that the, that the brain does an infinite number of calculations of different, different types, uh, and it occurs silently, the first debate question, which we can't solve today and probably can never solve is, is there such a thing as conscious thought? We know that the vast majority of things occur uh, beneath thought and then they're projected into consciousness, and then, at, at best, consciousness projects back down into the to this calculating mechanism, some additional instructions. Okay, but the, by itself, this would be neutral. For example, if you drive home on autopilot, you feel nothing. On the other hand, uh, you there are a whole separate area of the brain. I don't mean area localized. I mean a function of the brain is to to give us some idea of what is going on so if you if your calculations are from the body and your, your brain calculates that you have low serum osmolality you may have a lack of thirst or if it's a high osmolality you'll have a sense of thirst so the sense of thirst is a sensation that that goes along with the calculation and I think this is absolutely critical. So if you if you think about a calculation and then something to tell you what the calculation means or feels like, you say, okay, I'm thirsty or I'm hungry. Those are for bodily sensations. But the problem arises that there are also similar sensations that occur in conjunction with these calculations that relate to cognitive function. And the question is, are they really separate from the from the from the um, cognitive function. In other words, how do you know that these are sensations as opposed to actual thoughts? So, for example, if I say two and two is four, uh, and I feel that that's correct, is that conclusion that, that two and two is four is correct, is that a thought that we're having? Or is that a feeling based upon how you learn that two and two is four? And if you think about it, when you're a little kid, your mom says one and one is two, and two and two is four, and then you go, no, two and two is four, two and two is five, and she says, no, that's wrong. And eventually, you get a groove that two and two is four. You get both the you get both the the the, the memorization of that fact, and you get the real the the feeling that that fact is correct. So when you say two and two four comes into consciousness, you don't go, ah, uh, two and two and four. What is that? Is that mm -hmm. right or is that wrong? No, two and Two and two and four comes into consciousness because you know it's two, it's four. Mm -hmm. You're following. Yeah. So, so that the 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 concept of sensations are necessary to to bring things either into consciousness or leave them subliminally. Like for example, if you in a crowd and you see somebody, and the chance of one in a thousand that's Joe Blow, you don't go, oh, maybe that's Joe Blow. You need some sort of minimum threshold upon which you go that maybe that's a 60% chance of that's Joe Blow or 80% Joe Blow or 100% ah that is Joe Blow well that that whole feeling is really a brain calculation at a subliminal level that for obvious a lot of evolutionary reasons that then comes into consciousness as a combination of the calculation and the feeling that it's right and this feeling that things are right or wrong 
can be stimulated in the absence of uh, any thought at all. For example, you can do that with electro, uh, electrical stimulation of the brain. You can do it with transcranial magnetic stimulation. You hear people like William James describe this uh, as a, a, a mystical or uh, experience of oneness where everything feels right. But the most obvious one is one that when you if you suddenly you get aha that things are right, you know you didn't cause the aha. The aha simply happens to you. But when you have that feeling of knowing, you can't help but feel that you concluded it. So it, it is a sensation that feels like a conclusion. That's a, it's an enormous, marvelous trick of evolution. And uh, although there's all kinds of evidence to that in that regard, I, you know, when I wrote this book, I don't think people talked about it that way. No, I mean, no, it's it's, a, it's I've only come to this like uh, recently in the last year, and I was really astounded. I mean, people had recommended your book, but I was worried about reading it too soon because I didn't want to uh, plagiarize. I didn't want to um, kind of be polluted and, and mistake your thoughts for my thoughts. And and then coming to it here toward the end, it's, yeah, so many, you you might be surprised to learn that there are about three, there are about 10, but there, but there are three that I have sort of focused on persuasive techniques that are being used today that are extremely good they're very effective and they play on all sorts of things from the literature like motivational interviewing and elaboration likelihood model and things like that even though the people practicing practicing them don't know those did not know those things existed when they created these systems they just did a lot of a b testing and iterated until they got to something that works and for most of them they have all three of the ones that i detail in, in my book they um they start by building a little bit of rapport with the person they're talking to to just sort of let them know that they, Look, I'm 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 not going to like shame you or make you. I'm not. This is not about making you look stupid. That sort of thing. And then the, the next thing they ask them is when they they ask them to make some sort of claim, and then they say on a scale from zero to ten or, or zero to one hundred, how certain are you of that? That is that's in every one of these techniques, and they all independently sort of found that. And then once the person sort of says, this is how I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a six out of 10. They ask them why they feel that way. And they start moving into a different kind of conversation where they're more, t more, more concerned with the person's process. They're more concerned with the person's reasoning and their technique and how they get, got to that number than they are with any conclusion the person may have. And the idea is that this, this thing, which none of these techniques know, I'm going to bring this to them after we talk is that what they really are doing is is helping the person separate out on some unconscious level that the sensation is separate from um, the thought that the the conclusion and the sensation that they're having associated with it are somehow separate processes, and they're helping them kind of sort of feel that out. Yeah, that's actually. I think if I were a young person that was trying to develop an educational program, I would actually always ask people to try and give you um, a scale of zero to 10 of how likely they are that they're right and how they came to that point of view independently and, and to try and feel it. You know, if you look at neurology, a lot of it is about phenomenology and you ask people how you feel and you know, the aha is close because you, everybody knows what an aha is, but, a good example is gut feelings and and hunches and so on like that. They they those would be a lower level aha. Do you follow me? Aha would be a, yeah. a, a maybe a ten, and a gut feeling might be anywhere from a one to a four. And if people could separate them out, you say, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is the intensity of the feeling. 
It has nothing to do with the underlying thought. Yeah. See, that's that's this is incredible. Uh, and and you, you use a really good example in the book the um, the uh, the paragraph about the kite, which I was thought that was really very super clever because uh, like you get to have this feeling, uh, and you can feel you can notice a before and after, um, and that aha is is some way. I'm mean, assuming you're feeling this. Uh, the it's like tracking down the neurophysiology of of epiphany, which is right. pretty amazing. Um, let me ask you then, uh, I have a pretty good handle on what an attitude is. At least that's something that's been de- or defined and defined and defined and defined. Um, belief on the other hand, and I have asked this of a lot of people, there are no, I'm not looking for anything in particular. I'm just interested to hear what you say. Um, if you were tasked with coming up with a definition for what a belief is, what would you say? I I think a belief would be a it would, you know it, it it depends there's there's verbal and nonverbal beliefs mm-hmm. for, for example if you have empathy towards a, a somebody you might believe that you should help them but but it might not be that you're you think I I should help that person you might just feel you want to help them so it doesn't necessarily a belief doesn't even have to be language Mm-hmm. Uh, in in that case, a belief would be a in, in in a non-language situation, which I've never thought about this till today. So maybe this is dead wrong, but you it would be a visceral sensation of this is the right thing to do in this circumstance, it, in which it doesn't even come out as language. For example, you spontaneously reach out to help somebody who looks like they're going to trip. Let's say mm-hmm. you, it, it's a belief that you, it, but it is a belief that you should help them, but it's not a verbal belief. Now, if it's, but when you get down to cognitive beliefs, obviously you now have some idea or line of reasoning that, in addition to being um, what you've considered, it is embedded embedded within it is this sensation of of that it's correct. And the stronger the sensation that is correct, the more likely it is to color um, other beliefs, and they spread out like a ripple, so I guess on a, on a pond. Um, but uh, th- so for me, a belief would be a cognitive process in which it was associated with a strong sense of it being feeling right. So it, yeah, it'd be both a cognitive process and a and a specific sensation. See, this is um, for you that might that might seem like obvious, but I know that for most people that I talk to about this, beliefs are the layperson understanding of it is they're kind of like possessions. You know, they're objects. They're 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 baubles stored in a jar in your head somewhere. They're they're books on a shelf. They're files on a computer. Like beliefs are things. And I got a strong impression reading your book that you were saying that beliefs aren't things stored in your brain. They're processes. It's a thing that happens in the presence of thinking about this for a second or, or having to face a situation where you need a model of reality in which to engage in some sort of goal seeking or behavior or whatever, like the, um, and the fact that this fee, there's the, the, in, in, in that process is some sort of information encoded in your brain in And then accompanying that is some feeling of certainty or uncertainty with it. And that feeling happens to you bodily, like hunger and like thirst. That is so you there's such a different way of looking at it i mean even in like thousands of years of philosophical discourse there's not a whole lot that matches to what you're saying there but to me that seems absolutely the right way to look at it and if you correct me if i'm wrong but 
I feel like you're saying belief and doubt are both the results of neurons in networks and associative networks delivering this emergent sensation of confidence or the lack of it. And then those networks weight that feeling in, in one direction or another. And we call that believing or belief. That's right. Okay. <laughs> I did it. Oh, well, nice, nice talking to you. <laughs> That's really it. <laughs> It seems, um, it seems it, I mean, maybe it's because I've spent so much time on this. It seems so intuitively obvious that, unfortunately, I can't believe anything else. Which, so, I'm, so I'm victim of my own belief. Uh, <laughs> well, I can tell you, watching people, there's a, there are these three techniques, deep canvassing, uh, the persuasive pyramid, and the other one is um, um, street epistemology. But all of them are sort of Socratic method uh, on steroids kind of things. Um, and each one of them, they will start out by saying, let's start with a claim. Uh, you, it could be something based on attitudes, but they prefer to doing fact-based stuff. So they might say, I believe the earth is flat, for example. And then they would ask them, well, how strongly do you feel that way? And then they would start going into, well, what are some good, what are some reasons why you think that? And then they, you can feel the person wading into this thing. And what they're trying to do is separate out the conclusion from the process that arri of arriving at it. And somewhere in there, affect that emergent sensation of confidence. They, they, they want that, that sensation to be dampened in some way so the person starts to at least doubt, they at least move down on the scale. And um, I feel like I didn't have any explanation for what was going on there, not scientifically, until I ran across your work. And I don't know, I just want to say thank you again. It's really cool. Oh, that's nice. I appreciate the, you know, the kind thoughts. It's nice. Um, let's talk about something else that you in the book, which is uh, that you use to sort of talk about these weights. You call it the hidden layer. What is that? Well, a hidden layer would be a, is, is a term that I lifted from AI a long time ago. And I'm not an expert on AI in the slightest, but it's basically you get an input into the, into the, uh, into the brain from the outside source, whatever it is. And then these inputs go to a multiple, uh, neural networks within the brain and those go to more multiple neural networks and eventually you get an output and what amounts to so that each each connection within there is hidden no, hidden so that if you a, a good example would be the amazon um if you let's say you buy on um crime and punishment uh it, it goes to to this hidden layers of the ai thing at Amazon and it goes this guy's interested in crime novels mm -hmm. and the next time you get a recommendation of Elmer Leonard but you don't get it, it, it the recommendation of Elmer Leonard can't be backtraced to um, Dostoevsky because it doesn't work that way it, it's, it's a one way street You things go in there and everybody gets a vote on it from the uh, entries from the uh, other people who've been reading books and it in the the AI thing just makes a stab at what you um, are likely to like and and so if you're if you get a um, an input from let's say you watch somebody's face in the street you you immediately draw a conclusion as to what his background is his culture all the rest of it those are all things that are in separate neural networks bonded together but outside of of consciousness so i refer to them you know as a hidden layer because you you don't have access to it and even if you're the world's mm -hmm. best best introspector you really don't know how this goes on and you can't reverse engineer it you can't come up with what you you find some woman and you fall in love with her you can't go back and say well I have, I'm in love with her because that, 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 that's not a that's not a recipe for success um you're in love with her because all of these neural networks uh, 
bound together in what they call the hidden layer inputs lead to outputs and eventually it's love but the love can't be re, re reverse engineered into its component parts so it's a one-way street uh and it's all done outside of consciousness and it's what makes us so unbelievably ignorant of what what who we are as people so the hidden layer represents for me the end the the cul-de-sac of human knowledge you 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 can't reverse engineer how you came to a thought and you can't know in advance to predict what it's going to be and it's outside of your your conscious purview and so you do your best you know they say the unexamined life isn't worth living well that's mm -hmm. that's true but examining doesn't mean that you're right but unfortunately if you get that involuntary sensation of being right it serves as introspection um, I, I just rambled away but i maybe you No, that was good that the, it serves as introspection that's a really great way to put it um it reminds me of the example in the book, and if you don't, if you can remember it, it'd be nice to hear it from you. The the um, the space shuttle study, where which uh, the Challenger explosion study. Uh, do you remember that as an example? Right. So yeah, just very briefly, that that was actually one of the things that sort of got me started was was the, and for me, just to, to step back, one of the interesting things has always been to me the 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 borderland between psychiatry and neurology or if there ever even is such a difference between psychiatry and neurology so i'm always fascinated by those examples that make you question your belief about psycho uh, common theories about you know theories of mind psychology versus um uh, neurologic ways of looking at things so the the challenger study was one in point because i can't remember when it was i think it was in the late 80s i can't remember exactly and um there was a guy named Ulrich Nieser who was a uh, very famous uh, clinical psychologist who specialized in flashbulb memories. Those are memories of uh, um, major traumatic events where people are supposed to have the highest recall rate. So he took a, a hundred odd uh, uh, psychology students the day after a, the Challengers um, blew up. And he asked them to write down exactly where they were, what happened, how they fell and felt about it, and all the various personal details. And then he collected the journals and kept them for two and a half years. And then two and a half years later, he called the students back in and asked them again uh, uh, exactly what their recollections were. And not surprisingly, many of the people's me uh, memories were uh, inaccurate. Maybe only 10% were accurate in all the details, and I think 25% uh, of them had major discrepancies and when asked the majority of people felt that their that their new memory was much more accurate than the old memory even though they had been taught in class that memory morphs over time and then you're likely to have uh, uh, changes in memory that you might not even know how it came about so they were equipped with the psychology of the times and yet they still thought that their new memories were better than the old one but the one that got me was that there was this one student who said looked at his own handwriting and said yes that's my handwriting but that's not what happened and, and what struck me was interesting is that, that that's not a high there's no reason to 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 get psychologically very invested in in, a, in in something you could just say oh i guess i made a mistake i mean it wasn't such a thing that he would be forced to say that, but he was dead certain that that what he was looking at wasn't right. So the feeling of the new memory was so strongly correct that it it 
supervene and made it impossible to see that he might be making a, an error. And I thought, well, you know, if that's not psychological, maybe it's uh, on a more basic cognitive neurologic basis. And that's what got me prompted in part to think about whether there the, the sense that he was certain was beyond his control, which led me to think about it as a feeling state that was uh, a sensation as opposed to a thought. Yeah, it strikes me so much, th- that example, because when we are challenged with evidence that we might be wrong, um, if the brain continues to produce this mental state, this this feeling of certainty, we have no choice but to just assume, well, then we're correct, even if our own handwriting is the source of the challenge. Uh, so depending on the strength of it, this feeling of, of knowing that we are correct or knowing that we're certain, um, faced with this, the, the fact that we could be wrong, we will argue ourselves, our own, we'll argue with our own past selves as, as if we're sort of trapped in some kind of um, neurological prison of conviction. Um, does that freak you out? <laughs> uh, no, it's the way it is. You know, and, and, and to me, I think that this is the pessimistic uh, end point of my uh, um, thinking about this. But at the other time, on the other hand, maybe maybe it might be optimistic if you actually can just accept it. I mean, it, it, mm. I don't know how you change it. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a sense of like if we can accept it, then we can work with the way the brain actually functions instead of the assumptions that we often had there's this old thing that comes up a lot that uh, the information deficit model of science communication where the only re- the only reason people don't believe the earth is flat is because they don't have the fact or earth is round is they don't have the facts the only reason they don't believe climate change is real is because they don't have the facts so the only reason they're against vaccines or whatever it is is they just don't have enough facts and the same thing with attitudes like in political discourse like the only reason you support that candidate is you don't have all the facts and there's this idea that what's missing is they don't have the information that I have. And if I give them the information I have, they will absolutely switch over to my feelings of certainty in the situation, which doesn't happen. Um, And I feel like if if we can just agree, if we can just um, accept how the brain actually functions, as you're describing, then you can approach that sort of discourse in a way that will actually deliver some kind of result instead of what we usually do, which is get frustrated that people just won't listen to the facts. They won't listen to the facts. What's wrong with you? <laughs> so, yeah, I can, be, I, I can find a way to, to, to uh, transmutate this into optimism from pessimism, if, and I, I'm happy to hear that you're doing the same thing. Look around at, at modern life in general, on intellectuals on both sides of the fence. Almost everybody is a believer in rationality, even if they know it's not true, because it's a way to support your position if you get away from the idea of being of man as being rational agent you're really screwed in terms of presenting any information to anybody on the other hand if you believe that people are rational agents you have to believe that your line of reasoning is superior to someone else's if that's what you come up with and so it's the question is which is the better of two evils to believe that man is capable of rational thought in which case it's it's sort of the enlightenment ideal but has led to this kind of enormous partisanship because both sides believe that they are rationally correct or do you believe that we can't make these decisions because things like the feeling of knowing are so strong that they influence our decisions unconsciously in which case we have to conclude ourselves as being irrational animals like the rest of the animal kingdom and therefore 
may be subject to the same kinds of um, laws that you would put in place in, 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 in a kennel. I mean, I, it, <laughs> there's no obvious answer to that question. Yeah, I, I feel like um, we may be, but maybe thanks to social media and the epistemic chaos of the uh, last year or two, or the last four years, um, maybe we've entered into like a next era, a next phase of um, of thinking about thinking. Uh, I, I know that people are extremely interested and fascinated with the idea that um, that maybe there's more to it than we originally thought, or more once once we became sort of thrown into the mix where that marketplace of ideas went from being this sort of high-minded academic concept to it's just every day, like just every single day of your life, you're, you're, you're faced with argumentative frameworks uh, that, that are perplexing to people. That we're all, there's a lot of interest in the ideas that you put forth in that book, uh, newfound interest in these ideas. And I feel like it's, people are eager to get some sort of scientific, um, some sort of scientific, commentary on why it's so difficult to change your mind, why it's so difficult to persuade, why it's so, why why conspiratorial thinking is blossoming in such strange forms all across society at the moment. All of it seems to play back to the sort of the things that you were writing about in that book. Uh, yes, you know, and, and, and if you if you move out from the the idea of that sensation about uh, of knowing to expand it to the total panoply of mental sensations that we experience, you realize that almost all of modern psychology is, is predicated upon how you perceive it. A good example is, let's say you got a kid who's, who is trying to do an algebra problems, and he's with his friend, and the two of them are sitting side by side, and one guy says it's easy, and the other guy says it's hard. And that influences, and that influences not only how they behave, but that influences what what you as a parent say to your kid if he says it's hard. Well, what the kid is experiencing is a sense of effort, mm -hmm. uh, and sense of effort. Like sometimes when you think I really tried hard to come up with this idea, other times ideas just pop into your head, and you go, "Wow, that was that I, I, I didn't try at all." The difference is not in the thinking at, at the cognitive level, because I'm, unless you believe that the brain thinks differently when it's outside of consciousness than when it's in consciousness in terms of the actual mechanics, you got to believe it's the same. So what's the difference between you doing some, you getting an, uh, an idea that a fully formed idea like the end to a novel or say, or, or theory or something. And, and you say, well, it just popped my head. There was no effort involved at all versus when you're trying to, you're trying to do it and you're trying to do it and try. And, and the answer is that somehow is that the sensation determines how you feel about your own thoughts. And then, mm -hmm. and so when you start and you start to look at the various kinds of sensations we have, we have sensation of agency. We have sensations of causation. We have sensations of, uh, of, of even ownership. So, like for example, I'm, you're probably aware of this that in neurology, if you have a, a stroke of your non-dominant hemisphere in the posterior parietal region, you can have a sense like your left side of your body no longer belongs to you. Mm. So, what what is lost in that is the sensation of ownership of the left side of your body. So, conversely, if you do have a sense of ownership of the left side of your body, well, that means that so you own your bodily parts. Well, then you must believe that there are sensations that mean you, you own your own ideas. 
and you hear on you know I hear people who quote somebody else uh, that they heard on the radio and, and I say how'd you come with that he says well I thought about it and that I think that's right well they didn't think about it at all they actually memorized it but they can't tell the difference because they've incorporated it as part of what they believe is their their mind as opposed to a group mind so when you were talking about the um, uh, you know what you're seeing more and more in, in, in about I'm right, you're right, but a lot of these aren't even people's own ideas. They're ones that they've memorized, but attached to the memorization of them is the feeling that their own personal idea. So now it's no, no longer out there in the world. It's something like a meme that they could say, oh, yeah, that's what Joe Blow said. No, it's what I thought they think. And this, these mental sensations collectively make modern psychology extraordinarily difficult because we try to think in terms of, well, maybe if he had a better childhood, he did this, that. But, you know, a lot of this is really at a physiologic level. You mentioned in the book the, these, these brain injuries or these um, um, things that can happen via um, stroke and other conditions like Cotard syndrome and right. so on, where they're just they're just so illustrative of this strange thing. And if you could talk about it for a second, I know we don't have much time, is the... What happens when that feeling gets separated? Uh, you mentioned it just a, a bit with with somebody has um, these anisognosia type things. Uh, right. The but the it's some of them can feel so metaphysical. You know, the a person no longer believes that they are even alive, or they no longer feel their loved ones are real people anymore. Um, but what what strikes me in those situations is you can't argue them out of the feeling. You can't argue them out of it. You can't show them any evidence whatsoever that will make them feel, oh, okay, maybe I'm wrong about that. I'd like to hear what you, have, what you think about that. Uh, well, two things. Uh, re remind me, since I'll probably forget, about Sherwin, Sherwin Williams' paint. We'll try that but for a second. Um, so in, in, like in Cotard syndrome, the classic thing is a person has, it's usually a result of some brain injury, encephalitis, although it, it has also been described in psychiatric context, and I'm not sure whether those are really truly psychiatric. At any rate, people have a strong sense that they're dead. And, and, I, and, and there's a classic example I described in the book of a young woman who had a acute viral encephalitis and she had a feeling that she was dead and when she recovered um but, but actually before she recovered when someone she someone said to her um well are you dead and said, yes well do you have a pulse yes well then uh, what does that mean to have a pulse she says well it must mean that dead people have a pulse i mean it's completely <laughs> illog completely illogical yet yeah, but, but, but when she recovered she still said yes I, I i believed that i was dead she couldn't get it out of her mind and what you realize is that feeling of being alive um, had been somehow taken away from her or in, in this particular moment. And there's nothing that you could do to replace it. And, and the, other, the other one I mentioned in the book I seem to remember was, the, was an older gentleman who had a, had, had a very, very small stroke, made a full recovery except for this one thing. He went back home and he was an antique dealer and he, he, felt, mm, he, yeah. he felt his table, which was a big old antique a table that had wormholes and everything and he said to me you know this is not my table anymore and he thought it had been replaced by a fake and I, he said I said describe it for me he described everything exactly the same he said it looks like my table it, everything but it's not my table and you couldn't convince him that it wasn't and so he actually believed that someone had stolen his table and I you know you 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 get so you get mental states arising out of physical differences and I think 
which finally led me to this idea about mental sensations as coloring your cognitive behavior. And that's why I mentioned about the Sherman Williams. Um, I just had this image for the first time just while you were talking, which is if you, if you try to present someone with a new fact and have them accept it as superior to the fact that they already have in mind, a contrary uh, point of view, in essence, do you remember that old ad about Sherwin Williams where you, you they poured the, the 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 paint, and and they said cover the earth with Sherwin Williams paint or something. You pour the you pour the paint over the globe, and you could see the, the the color change. In essence, you have to recolor people's thoughts to get them to change. So you need somehow to make the sensations that they have attached their thoughts, you loosen one set of sensations, like lower the like, likelihood of correctness and, and, and raise the likelihood of incorrectness or conversely raise the like, create a feeling of knowing spontaneous. In other words, you need to somehow saturate their neural networks with a new set of sensations. And, and that doesn't seem to occur through logical analysis and uh, discourse. And if it doesn't occur that way, then how would it occur? Mm-hmm. And that's really the question, I think. It's really neat, to, too, because there's so many assumptions in Western philosophy that are just based off of a complete – that's just that's not how the brain works. And um, it is, it's odd to go into epistemology and try to, sort, try to use that as a way to discuss – how we should be better members of society. How, uh, it's really amazing and fascinating and thrilling to me that the true path uh, is a mix of some things from, from philosophical discourse, but are things like you have in your book that are come from a very new science, especially if we think about it on a, on a long scale of human uh, you know, thought, that these are extremely new insights and findings and and understandings about what it means to have a conscious mind with beliefs and attitudes and values and opinions and so on. Um, And so therefore the advice for living a fulfilling life and also for interacting with other people is also very new. And I think that's exciting. Yeah, no, I, 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 wrote this with an enthusiasm which seems to be waning due to the political climate. Uh, but, but, <laughs> uh, and, and I think one of the, I think one of the problems is that the whole concept of overpowering someone with a higher intellect is most appealing the higher your intellect and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So when you get in academic circles, you get people arguing that um, my reason is better than your reason. And the inherent assumption underneath it is because I'm smarter than you are. And therefore, my line of reasoning is better, which just leads to further inflammation of those people who thinking isn't as integral to their way of life. A lot of people are non-philosophical. They're, they, they're not interested in those things and they don't, they don't think deeply about stuff and they resent intensely those people who claim uh, reason. And at the same time, the reason doesn't change their mind anyhow. And so it, it, we, we, and, and this argument about elitism, which is, is raising its ugly head in America now is in large part related to the offensiveness of the argument that logic works when in fact people see that it doesn't work. 
<laughs> and, you, and really, and, you, and, and there's going to be a move against academics over time. I mean, I look at some of the books that have come out recently, and you go, how did you come up with that idea? And why, <laughs> and why would you think that? Uh, and one, of the, one of the ones that, that I, strikes me as most interesting is, and maybe it's a way of thinking about this, is let's say, do you think there's more or less violence now than there was 100 years ago? Well, first question is, what do you mean by violence? In other words, if you mean the number of people that are killed, the number of people that are uh, are threatened, the number of people that feel uneasy with their daily lives because they're afraid to walk on the streets, and I mean, and each one of those is a different form of violence. If you think of poverty as a form of violence, so, but why would the question even occur to you? I mean. It occurs to you somehow because you want to make a point, and then you write a book about how violence has decreased, and then you argue that this is because of the Enlightenment. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the book. Better Angels, yeah. Yeah, and I'm going, forget for the moment whether it's right or wrong. Why did you come up with that idea? What prompted you in the first – and this is where we get back to the hidden layer. What triggered – that notion, now you can argue about um, all of the, the negative aspects of human psychology like, you know, you know ego and, and gratification, power and, and whatever, fame. But forget that. Just assume that it's completely hypothetical. Why? That thought has never occurred to me. Why would it occur to Pinker? And it occurs because it's triggered by these neural networks. Based upon all of his previous, and, and you know, he was interviewed along with um, Daniel Kahneman. What came out of the whole thing is that Kahneman's a pessimist and Pinker's an optimist. And, mm -hmm. and we now are recognizing more and more that a lot of this are, these are innate traits. You see similar degrees of optimism and pessimism and identical twins raised apart, you know, and you go, wouldn't it be better if you just said, this is, this is a belief that I have based upon the way my body colors my cognitive actions as opposed to it being uh, some hard-won intellectual thought that I'm going to jam down someone's throat. I don't know. It's very difficult because as I'm saying this to you, it's based upon my beliefs that my ideas are right too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're just a, we're all a big glob. We're all globs of neural networks doing our best. Right. Uh, <laughs> but that's so... Uh, and I'm very happy we've made it this far. Uh, the The fact that we would be thrown into each other's pockets so suddenly and so uh, completely by uh, the internet uh, and social media and then smartphone technology and then high-speed internet, um, it seems like, yeah, this would be a moment for us to really be slamming into each other's um, certainties. And the result of that is going to be a lot of messy weirdness for a while. Um I really appreciate that you wrote this book. Um, and I just, I don't know what to say other than like, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to me. And um, I will say that your book was a real gift to me. And I really appreciate that. Well, if anytime I can be of help or if you want to do this again sometime or you feel free to give me a holler. I don't know that I made any sense today, but I, you know, <laughs> you know there we are. Great, Davis. It's been fun chatting. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. We can also find links to past episodes. Or you can go to Spotify or Stitcher or SoundCloud or iTunes or Omni, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast should be there. Follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. We're also on Facebook at slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this one-person operation, go to Patreon dot com slash 
you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but the higher amounts gets you posters, t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music was by Incompetech, and this music is by Banjo Apocalypse. Um, hey, tell everybody you know about the show. That really helps everything out more than anything, I think. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. are true We're overwhelming power the sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wick donald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili mcdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wick donald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go and participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last